it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, the Tuesday edition of the show. I think it'll be as good, if not better, than Monday's. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West is coming up shortly. You know him, almost 30 years in the business, uh, uh, serving in the military with more. Hi, everybody. Uh, Yeah, guys, uh, the elevator was just a little bit stuck there. So I was just uh, uh, trying to get up here as quick as I could. That's never happened before. Yeah, there's like like 70 people. Uh, And then when I finally got in the elevator, there was between, there was like five stops. So... Kind of helpless. Don't they know who you are? We need a VIP elevator for you. I know. Now or I could have played it tactically and got out of it instead of getting the first elevator, getting the second one. But uh, we're back. Uh, so there's a lot going on. Everybody's focused on what's going on in Uvalde, of course. Uh, there's also things going on called a war in Ukraine. This is how bad the shooting was. This is how bad the shooting was. The president of Ukraine offered condolences to us. That's how bad when you that's when you shoot eight and 10 year olds. That's how horrific this is. Uh, So Congressman Mike Waltz, why don't we just get right to him, is right there. Hey, Congressman, welcome back. Hey, good to be with you, Brian. Thanks. Um, First off, on on what's happening right now uh, in Uvalde, we have 19 dead, 19 children dead, 21 overall uh, with the two teachers. We're still trying to find out about uh, the takedown, how uh, how many people are on the outside and for how long with law enforcement. We know that happened with Stoneham in Florida. But I'm just wondering from the outside perspective and the insider, are you shocked how quick this devolved into politics? Yeah, sadly, sadly, Brian, I'm I, I'm not shocked. And I think uh, Beto O'Rourke's little stunt there has really backfired on him. Uh, I, you know, Americans are, t- are are tired of this divisive politics. I mean, it's interesting. On the one hand, they want us to fight. They want us to fight for our values. Uh, but, but on the other hand, they want us to come together in times like these. And uh, I, I, I think that really um, has blown back on him. Uh, the Senate is in session this week. We saw a session yesterday where uh, Senator Rick Scott from Florida and Ron Johnson uh, tried to move a measure forward uh, that would harden our schools. Schumer slapped it down, uh, and 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 that devolved into into political infighting. Uh, people are tired of it, and right now we need to be focused on the families. Here's uh, what happened yesterday. So the governor's going over the amount of deaths, the TikTok of what happened, the, the chain of events that took place. That as we start to unwind, what and this is what Bitter O'Rourke had somebody hold his seat until the press conference started, and then they quickly left their seat, and he jumped in, leaned over, almost hiding. Cut 10. Excuse me. 
Excuse me. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down and don't play this. Next shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No, you should get his out of here. This isn't the place to talk to so This is totally predictable. So so he he got up there, stood up, and he gradually uh, was tossed out of the press conference, and then he had a big. A uh, scrum around him on the outside. To a degree, did he accomplish his goal? Now people talking about him getting the nomination to run for governor again? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the age-old uh, political kind of hack approach of, of any publicity is good publicity. Uh, and, and I guess there's something to that. But look, not in the middle of a briefing for parents, uh, for grieving loved ones, for a small town in, in, in America that's just devastated and it's just trying to figure out what the heck happened. I mean, that's really what that briefing was for. There'll be future forums to talk about what do we do about it? How do we stop all of this? Whether it's dealing with guns, mental health, uh, you know, things that are broken in our society, but that was just absolutely not the time. And then the way he did it, um, it's one thing to stand up and ask a question. It's another thing to have a civil debate, but to really grandstand like that, I think it's just, I don't think he's going to accomplish his goals. I think it makes him seem like the kind of shell of right. a, you know, of a political showman that he is. I want to get into because you know tactics. You know how to go into a room of hostile people. Uh, you yeah. probably don't want to knock. That's what the President Biden wants the cop to do to start to knocking now before they <laughs> try to arrest a killer. Ask him to come outside uh, nicely. But here's what Joe Biden. I mean, I could not be uh, more angry about this. Listen to this. Cut eight. The idea. An 18-year-old can walk into a store and buy weapons of war designed and marketed to kill is, I think, just wrong. It just violates common sense. Even the manufacturer, the, the, the inventor of that weapon, thought that as well. You know, where's the backbone? Where's the courage to stand up to a very powerful lobby? Really? The NRA is, is the powerful uh, lobby. If you don't stand, if you stand up for your Second Amendment, you don't have a backbone. What's your reaction to that? That's the leader of our country. Yeah. You know, Brian, I mean, I thought it was really a sad moment. Uh, I, I would love to hear the president of the United States really trying to get to the heart of the issue. I mean, what is going on? I, I heard you uh, on the show earlier talking to uh, um, Lieutenant Governor, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and I think he nailed it. I mean, what is going on or we have a societal issue um, that I think has set the conditions in some ways for this to happen, where we have violent video games uh, that children play and parents are unwell, uh, un- totally unaware. We have our society telling children it's anything is okay. Uh, whatever you think is okay, society thinking that that parents are uh, that when parents are stern or discipline their kids that it's that it's some type of abuse, or society telling criminals that they can just commit violent crime and not be held accountable, uh, and and that's not offering any solutions, but that's really getting to the heart of the issue. Whether this 18-year-old or the one in Buffalo wanted to walk in there with a knife or a pistol. Uh, or an AR-15, or what have you, um, okay, we, we, we got to deal with that, but we got to deal with why did he want to do this and kill little kids in the first place, and why is it systemically happening? So um, yeah. that's, what, that's the root cause that you know, the leader of the free world should be trying to address, 
and leading our society in a better direction. Uh, but instead, he went right to politics because he knows his, his numbers are upside down. Uh, yeah, but amazing. Now he's going to go down there and he gives the same speech every time. We dear don't walk around with the Kevlar vest, says the same thing all the time. You know, he had tragedy in his life. No one's happy about that. But he's not the only one with tragedy. He keeps on going to this as if it's a great campaign line. John McCain didn't walk around saying, you know, I was a prisoner of war every time there was a military conflict. In fact, you couldn't even get him to talk about the times he was a yeah. uh, prisoner of war. Uh, just the way he does it, it's, it, it sounds gratuitous. Uh, personally, a couple of things that are going to happen. Number one, you're going to be asked, how do we, I would like to analyze the last, let's say, 15 school shootings. If there's, is there any commonality between these last 15 school shootings? Number two, in the meantime, we have to harden the targets. And if there's ever money needed for economically disadvantaged areas in schools, that's where the national money should go to. Right. If you could put it to those schools, don't tell me my town's too small. We can't afford it to put armed guards front and back on every school while we try to figure this thing out. So harden the targets. Can't we all agree on that? One would think, I mean, that's exactly what uh, uh, Senator Rick Scott and Ron Johnson tried to put on the floor, uh, Senate floor yesterday uh, that and, and it would codify a, a, a federal clearinghouse for school safety practices so everybody's on the same page and brian by the way under uh under covid uh we passed 150 billion dollars uh to go out to schools maybe some of that should be diverted from the, the latest greatest you know hvac systems uh and and actually harden our school and just by point of reference that's almost the size of the entire United States Army's budget. Uh, but that's going out to schools, uh, and, and I think it could be far better spent to harden them and to protect our kids. I think so, too. What is your takeaway in these uh, between eight, pushing the age from 18 to 21 to buy a gun? Well, you know, Florida has done that, and I think there's a lot of people that say, look, if you can't buy a beer— uh, until 21, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun. I mean, I think that's a quick and easy argument. But at the same time, um, you know, you don't have a constitutional right to have a beer. You have a constitutional right to protect yourself. I think, Brian, I think that should be handled at the state. Obviously, you know, a 19, 20-year-old in Wyoming um, and, and their ability to go get a rifle is different than, say, in, in, in downtown L.A., um, and I think this is that's perfectly appropriate for the states to handle. Understood. Uh, I want you to hear this exchange because it, it could be uh, you, too, in Florida. Uh, this is Congressman uh, Tony Gonzalez of Texas on with Gail King of CBS Cut 20. Are you able to vote against two gun gun reform measures? Are you rethinking that position this morning in light of what has happened? I'm happy to debate policy another time. But today we should be but, united. We should talk about the survivors. Know, as well as, as well as those victims. Gail, to me, Gail, this is I a perfect day to talk Gail, about Gail, it. Gail, it's not a political football for me. This is home. Yeah. What do you think about that that exchange? Yeah, well, again, I mean, it, it, they're going right to a symptom rather than, than the core illness that is causing people to want to do this. Uh, and believe they can they, they can go uh, they can go do it and get away with it. Uh, again, whether that whether a kid walks in with a backpack full of pistols, uh, whether he walks in with um, with shotguns, uh, or he walks in, I mean, they're they're so focused on the individual type of weapon 
And I'm, I want to get to the core illness and the core sickness here uh, of what's going on. So, again, but this is but this is the politics of the left. And and I think between I mean, just to turn it into the political conversation for a moment between Roe versus Wade and that um, uh, ruling that will come out at the end of this month uh, in these shootings. I think this is where you know the Democrats believe they have a real issue. Uh, the other thing is, let's just update on what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. Russia trying to quickly uh, just basically annex the the area in which they have uh, for whether it's Mariupol or Kyrgyzstan, and they're looking to try to encircle a couple of other towns. What could you tell me that's happening on the ground? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one, you're just seeing that the Russians continue to compensate for their failures in logistics, command and control. Uh, uh, morale with with heavy artillery, which they have unlimited numbers of, and the Russian military has the most artillery of of any military in the world, and unlimited shells. They're, they shelled forty cities and towns yesterday, Brian. Uh, so they're going to continue to pound away. Uh, and meanwhile, you're seeing the Russification of the areas that they have taken. Uh, where they're already putting them um, on the ruble. They're already trying to send in um, uh, Russian leaders. Uh, they're already you know, mandating that everybody speak Russian. So, so Putin, I, I think, is running out of steam here. He has lost an estimated third, 30 percent of, of his battle groups, uh, and he's essentially going to move the line. And if you listen to people like uh, former Secretary of State Kissinger, who this week said, Zelensky should just give up part of his country just to achieve peace. You know, that is I mean, that's that's the mentality of 1938 and uh, and 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 Neville Chamberlain. Uh, If if Putin solidifies these lines, he will lick his wounds in the next three to five years. Mark my words, and he'll be back at it again. Uh, We have to help Zelensky go on offense. We need to give him uh, the arms and ammunition he needs to go on offense. Uh, otherwise, the entire world is going to be facing this crisis in the future. And we have to help uh, Zelensky deal the Russians in actual defeat. And what about the fact that they basically shut off the Black Sea and they're enabling for uh, grain yeah. and food to leave uh, the breadbasket of Europe and maybe even get into Africa? You know, Russia says, yeah, we'll let that happen if you release all the sanctions. What should our response right. be? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which is which is uh, you know essentially holding food, you know holding the world's food supply or at least that region's as a hostage. We just had a a meeting with the king of Jordan, uh, and he was telling us the Palestinian territories have less than a month's supply uh, on hand, uh, and they're completely dependent. That whole region in in Turkey, uh, the Middle East, uh, Africa. I mean, this could be a massive famine and crisis. If uh, Russia doesn't allow those ships to leave and time's running out, I think one of the things that all of those countries should be talking about and putting pressure on Russia about, and we should as well, along with the Europeans, is a humanitarian corridor uh, and, and perhaps even an armed one. You know, Brian, we completely ceded the Black Sea. Biden pulled all of our ships out and just gave that, uh, gave that area completely up. And I've been asking the Pentagon repeatedly when are we going to send our ships back in, stop appeasing, stop letting him deter? Uh, but, but I think we should look seriously at a humanitarian corridor out of Odessa and let those uh, ships out full of grain, oil, seeds, uh, fertilizer, the things people need to survive.
Yeah, and Dazur International Waters is your point. And the other point is yep. they are so scared uh, because they were blown up by, with, I guess, some version of the harpoon. Uh, they have pulled their ships way back. So we should just go in and just assert ourselves because I think people starving to death is enough of a reason. Congressman Michael Waltz, always great. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you, Brian. All right. one 408 We're going to come back and take your calls. Then Carly Shimkus at the bottom of the hour. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Please spare me, but don't politicize this death's BS. Because these deaths, these record numbers of American slaughters, are political. They are happening because of uniquely American politics. They are happening because 327 million Americans are essentially hostages to a morally and financially bankrupt gun lobby. No, it's called a gun culture because that's how we fought for our freedom, and we have a Second Amendment that allows it. Australia lost it. You saw what happened uh, to their country. And you see what happens? They disarm a population when they want to take over a population. And now you have people like Michael Moore and Joyless Reed coming out and saying, Hey, you know what? Let's take the guns away and let's undo the Second Amendment. Uh, That's their answer. Uh, Joel in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hey, Joel. Hey, you know, these actors, Hollywood, fine, take away the guns and take them away from the movies. And then I didn't need Tucker to tell me yesterday. He was absolutely right. I've always known it. And you mentioned it earlier, a commonality with with all these perps. Look at those eyes. They're, they're like zombies. And you never hear, at least I've never heard, of anybody saying, let's get rid of guns on these Internet games or videos yep. where these kids are blindly shooting people with no, they're doing it all day. And that's the problem, I mean, as I see it. But and, and you know the gun lobby, is the NRA is in tatters. The NRA is not even a force. The NRA played no role in the 2020 election at all. They're being sued Maybe for no reason. I haven't looked closely at the case by the attorney general in New York. Uh, they've had terrible leadership. They, they threw away a lot of their money. They, they do not have a powerful lobby. It is people that like guns. The law-abiding people with guns are not the issue. The, the crazy people will find a way to get guns like they always do. 18 to 21, let's have a, a, let's have a talk about that. The red flag laws, let's try to do it right. But other things, vilifying, that's not going to work. That's anti-leadership.
a radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's not about the how necessarily, but the why, in, in the sense that these are people that want to harm people in a mass scale, and the instrument they use in many cases are guns, but that sentiment of wanting to hurt people is the one we really need to really focus on. The one thing I can tell you is we do have tools available now for risk assessment. It's one of the ways the Secret Service protects presidents. It's not so much about the physical protection alone is that they are able to profile and identify people that they believe pose a threat to a president or a leader and are able to go to them and prevent them from acting. And that same system that is able to identify that, that risk assessment protocols exist for things like mass shooting. And then the question becomes, can you have tools in place to identify and intervene before people take that next step? Senator Marco Rubio trying to think analytically about how to stop the next attack rather than politically had a score for it. And yes, he is in, uh, you know, not an easy race. Uh, Val Demings to keep his Senate seat for six more years. With me right now, Carly Shimkus is always in a battle to keep her seat for the next six years. You really run on four-year <laughs> terms, right? Uh, two. Oh, two-year yeah, terms. Yeah, I, like I like the pressure. Oh, you like to be Stay on my game. always be raising money. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the problem. So uh, are you surprised how quickly this devolved into politics? I mean, the president within an hour. It's, it's talking about politics. Yeah, and then obviously Beto O'Rourke yesterday was stunning. I was watching that at the time, and um, as this was going down, first it's shocking. You don't expect anything like that to happen. And then I said, that guy kind of looks like Beto O'Rourke. And then I just went about you know listening to it. And then Sandra and John get on, and they, yep, it was Beto. I. Um, I think he did himself so much political damage by doing that, um, making the moment completely about himself um, at a time when people are grieving. And I, I guess all he thought about was scoring political points um, in his floundering and failing gubernatorial run. Um, it is a shame. Uh, I don't think it should be the focus at all, though, of this, right. of, of uh, this moment. Maybe people on the left are paying attention to him. Maybe they – maybe – I mean, Carly, that's how I feel. That's obviously – I think your assessment, but maybe people on the left that goes, look, he's standing up yeah. to that well, horrible you, governor. Did you hear what Nicole Wallace said? Uh, it was a little clip that we played on Fox and Friends first. Maybe there is a greater context um, in the segment than what we aired. But she was saying something like, if this is how they're going to treat, this is how they're going to treat Beto by kicking him out. That really says a lot about, you know, the city of uh, Uvalde or, or how Texas is treating this situation. Uh, really? I that so, that uh, that so is that, the first so time. So work is is the is the uh, innocent one here. I, I that's a that's a twist. Well, I mean, he, he won first. He says, uh, "I want to take everybody's gun away." Remember, and he was, and he was going to be gun czar for Joe Biden, and his I'm campaign take away went nowhere. AK forty sevens. Yes, and they want to take down the wall too. He goes, "I would take down that wall if I become uh, if I was become president." Yeah. Okay. And then he changed that. I know. When he starts running for governor, so now what does he think? What would he do different? Yeah, well, there he said on the campaign trail. He said, um, "No, no one's taking your guns away anymore." I think he even said that he wanted to protect the Second Amendment. And then this school shooting happens, and he's standing up at a, a press con- conference and saying the exact opposite. So I don't know where he stands on the issue. Yeah, well, you know what? In fact, we have it. He had a little uh, scrum afterwards. Cut eighteen. <laughs> 
Do you want a solution? Stop selling AR-15s in the state of Texas. You want a solution? Have universal background checks. We don't have them. You want a solution? Red flag laws or extreme risk protection orders, which stop a shooting before it happens. You want a solution? Safe storage laws. Those are four solutions that have been brought up by the people of Texas. Each one of those has broad bipartisan support right now. We could get that done if we had a governor who cared more about the people of Texas than he does his own political career or his fealty to the NRA. And if you need any proof of that, check the schedule for the NRA's convention this Friday right here in the state of Texas. It'll be in Houston. And that's the NRA can't have conventions? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, no, listen. I mean, he's allowed to have those political yep. opinions and, and half, half the country does. And, and that's completely fine. Nobody's arguing that um, that political debate can and should happen in this country. That's how we operate as a democracy. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that he the timing of when he tried to do this. And also, if you think you're going to bust into a press conference a, a day after the second most deadly school shooting and yell at people, that's really going to change their mind. Then you are crazy. No no minds are being changed on gun control because Beto O'Rourke stood up there and pointed fingers and right. then was sh- shamefully kicked out by law enforcement from, from you know the civic center where they were holding this conference. Well, but let's look at some of what he just said. Uh, universal background checks. There is background checks. Number two, uh, stop selling era 15s. Uh, that's a debate that we've pretty much uh, pretty pre- prevalent that they are not assault weapons. They're not weapons of war. Uh, they are commonplace in this country. You can go to have a debate on that. I think red flag laws are, could be good if implemented the correct way. I mean, we would have stopped the guy in Buffalo because at the very least, uh, if I'm a gun owner and this guy just sat down for 90 minutes or two and a half hours with state police because of his mental illness and threatening to blow up a school and shoot up a school. I'd like to know about that before I sold him a gun. Uh, but when you comes to uh, when it comes to uh, what they're talking about in terms of red flags, this kid had none. I know. That's so this guy thing. had none. Yeah. So he went in there and he and the gun was thrown because I feel terrible. But this, there was no reason for me there to stop no him. Reason. He turned eighteen. Yeah. If you want to talk about raising the age to twenty one, that Florida did under a Republican governor. Uh, we just had Michael Waltz on. He says that's really up to your state. Right. So you could have that debate uh, if you think if that'll be it. If you're going to war, though, can you, you know, I mean, you just keep on going get, back and forth I know. on this. And, you know. You don't drink to you 21, but right. you go to war, you get trained to use that. Yeah. But you know, the, but th- this is the point, is that you this debate is something that should be had uh, just at that time that he chose to have it was completely self-serving and, and disgusting and ridiculous. All right. So here's the other side of it. NBC seemed to love it. Cut 19. The political fallout out of that O'Rourke thing yesterday, I think, is going to continue. This is the kind of thing where this is what a lot of Democrats have been hoping for in the state of Texas, someone to express the frustration that they have felt. It's in line with the kind of politics that he has liked to practice. And it's in line with the political theory that says there is a voter base in Texas who wants the kind of thing that you've been outlining, that there is an 80 percent majority in a state like Texas who wants the kind of policies that we haven't seen here in this state, like red flag laws, which were discussed after Santa Fe and Sutherland Springs, the other two big uh, mass shootings in Texas, but didn't get off the ground. The question of buying long guns, buying rifles at 18, but handguns uh, not allowed to be bought in Texas until you're 21 is the other big piece of this puzzle. Governor Abbott was asked about that at the press conference and made an argument that it's been 60 years that that's been the law in Texas, that you could buy a long gun at 18, not a handgun. And he essentially 
essentially said that was the reason not to change it. Um, as a Texan myself, I can tell you that a very much has changed in this state uh, in 60 years and that that question deserves a follow up. Hmm. Yeah. Um, where you stand on this issue obviously depends on where you sit, you know, politically. Um, I think that a lot of people who support the Second Amendment say we hear you there. But first of all, there are more guns in this country than people. So you can't – taking guns away from law-abiding citizens right. isn't going to stop the bad guys hey, Carl, from getting Think about Adam Lanza in Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. He kills his mom and takes her guns. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. age could be 40. I know. No one's stopping him. But, you know, you bring up Adam Lanza, and then you think about um, the Parkland shooter and Col- dating back to Columbine. And I think that this time around there is a, a huge focus on who is committing these mass murders at school. And they are all teenage boys. And why is that happening? And, you know, there's clearly a mental illness factor um, that is going on in this country like we've never seen before. And we had Jack Brewer on and he was talking about how it, it you know, that there's a breakdown in family structure and society and religion uh, like we've never seen before in this country. I mean, my parents didn't have to deal with mass shootings, um, but it started in the 90s and it's continuing into in, into today in a more aggressive fashion than ever before. So looking at the psychology of these people and really targeting who they are, um, I think could be uh, beneficial to figuring out really what's going on here. All right. So the other thing is talk about tone deafness. Uh, yesterday, the president announced, I know it was George, the anniversary of George Floyd's murder and he was killed, but they go and announce police reform. Mm. Inconsequential acts all looking to diminish their power. Number one, let's uh, let's limit no-knock warrants. Okay, so you go break into that house, yeah. uh, Mr. Politician, and tell the murderer to give himself up. Knock first. Do you mind? And then when it comes to choke calls, fine. Do you see some of these assailants who have, are no longer have the fear of cops? So don't shoot them. Limit the time you use the uh, the stun gun. And number three is whatever you do, don't restrain them in a way that might be perceived as a chokehold. So why were you rolling that out yesterday when clearly the problem is law and disorder, not law enforcement? Yeah, I think that everybody across the board really re- recognizes now that uh, cops are not the problem. If there, <laughs> Maybe the president needs to be clued in on that. If there's one bad officer, then they, that person should not be a police officer, take them out. We don't want you here. But to demonize all police. And really, that's what that's what this is about. This was um, a message that the president was sending that we need to tighten the reins around law enforcement because we don't trust you. And he did it at a time when crime is on the rise across the country. I mean, Think about the national mood right now. It is pro-police because we recognize what happened when you cut police out of the equation. So, yeah, of course he was doing it because of uh, the death of George Floyd, but he also did it the day after the school shooting took place. And it, police ran into the line of fire once it, again. Exactly, and I think he's worried about the black vote more than anything else. Heather McDonald, who breaks down law enforcement better than anybody else with the best stats, was on with Tucker last night, cut 37. The police are not the problem in the black community. Criminals are. Uh, the police shot six allegedly unarmed blacks in 2021. Compare that to the 10,000 blacks who were killed by criminals. In fact, a police officer is 400 times as likely to be killed by a black as an unarmed black is to be killed by a police officer. George Floyd's death was sickening, but it wasn't a pattern. 
It doesn't represent the way most blacks die. And if Biden really cared about black lives, he would call for law and order and stop demonizing the cops. Mm. Do you need to say any more? I know. When you hit I love stats? her. And she's armed with the facts and the statistics, and she isn't afraid to say it. She's with the Heritage Foundation, I believe. Um, 97 children have been shot. 97 children have been shot in Chicago, Chicago alone, uh, so far this year. And I was reading about one of them. He was murdered last weekend uh, or the weekend before. His name is Shondell Holiday. Um, and it's so sad. He was. 17 years old, and he recently told his teacher, you know, he was having this conversation about his future, and the teacher said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, well, if I make it to 21, I want to be, um, I want to own a music studio. She said, why would you phrase it like that, make it to 21? And he said, well, you know, I mean, it's Chicago, kids die all the time. I mean, the fact that he even knew that yeah. that was the da- that was the ever-present danger in his life, and he, he didn't even make it to 18 years uh, old. It's I remember so it. tragic. Yeah, I was in Los Angeles when those uh, first riots happened in 94, and I was interviewing these school kids, and I'll never forget this one kid said to me, I've always been told no one ever promises you tomorrow. And wow. he was like 11. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, I know. No one ever promises you tomorrow. And the thing that's going on in Chicago right now, and it really did, Brian, it really, really did coincide with the riots and the Black Lives Matter movement in, in the summer of 2020, is that um, the bad areas – Chicago is a tale of two cities for sure. The bad, bad areas are getting worse in the, the nice areas – um, are getting really dangerous. Smash and grab, too. I mean, yeah, but shootings, too. I, sh- um, there was my husband. We have an apartment in Chicago, and um, it's, in a, it's in a good area. Um, there was a mass shooting right outside uh, the apartment a couple, a couple months ago. Uh, eight people got shot. And it's just and that's kind of becoming the norm, um, and it is really concerning. And uh, I think Lori Lightfoot ran on a platform of fixing the issue, and it has completely devolved under her. I'm starting to think she's not that good of a mm, mayor. Is it? Yeah. Um, do you think I jumped to conclusions? Well, or? that's the um, intuitiveness that I really like about you. I've always right. said that's one of your superlatives. Do I have any others? <laughs> Many. Oh, okay, good. Uh, There's a long pause there for a second. Hey, when we come back, uh, a little bit more, maybe takes it out. You know what? I'm not going to take phone calls. More quality time with, uh, with Carly because I do want to talk to her about baby formula and what we found out yesterday Uh, Buckle up until July. No joke. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. FDA's timeliness of interviewing the whistleblower and getting into the facility for a four-cause inspection were too slow, and some decisions in retrospect could have been more optimal. So that is uh, the talk yesterday. The new FDA commissioner came out to try to explain why we don't have any baby formula in the most powerful country in the world, Koli Shimkus here. Uh, Carly, it turns out uh, in the whistleblower put something in the mail saying this is uh, this uh, lab. The Abbott lab is a mess, and it was. Yeah. You have to have an inspection, and it should be. And it turns out it got caught in the mailroom. I know. So by the time they got back to the guy, it was December already. And by the time they saw the lab and saw how dangerous it was, they shut it down. But no one shut it down and said, what happens if we shut it down? Does anyone know that this is 40 percent of the entire That's market, that the, the whole thing. country could be out of it? I know. The, and the mailroom element is like the most government excuse ever. Oh, the mailroom? So embarrassing. It, it really is so embarrassing. And then we also learned that the Abbott Lab, 
the new the plant was a total mess. Uh, leaking roofs, water pooled on the floor, cracks in key uh, production equipment that allowed bacteria to get in and persist. That's what the FDA commissioner told the House panel yesterday. He said that it was a- egregiously unsanitary. So the plant did need to be shut down. Um, and then I have heard the argument that one of the things that the FDA could do more is they have to do more inspections. Because apparently this plant hadn't been inspected in a really long time, so people get sloppy. Right. And so some people are saying, okay, well, the only way to get more inspections going is you have to give the FDA more money. Their their budget is $8 billion. There's some outrageous amount. If you can't do regular inspections on these key factories, especially ones that provide food for babies with an $8 billion budget, that's on you. That's right. not on the – That's we don't need to increase the budget. You just need to do better management of the money that you're and being And how about given. this? If you're the FDA and you shut down something like this, you, you don't let it – your job's not done there. you got to stay having them fix it, set up timelines because it could affect national security. Your job then, acting director, whoever it is, is to go to the White House – and you say, by the way, Commerce, Commerce Secretary, this is going to be a problem. Yep. Because if we don't get this up and running in a short minute of time, we have to have a plan. Does anyone think bigger responsibility? I know. So Can imagine in our job if you say, all I have to do is read the news. If you don't have another anchor there on the couch, it's really not my fault. I'm going to toss to an empty couch. Yeah. No, I'm going to keep it here and see what happens. I know. Why can't anyone think beyond their paycheck? It's, it is truly unbelievable. And it, it's not the FDA commissioner's fault, right, that that testified yesterday because I don't even think Just got was, the job. Yeah. Um, Why did it take forever to nominate an FDA director? That's the thing, especially when we're coming off a pandemic. You would think that would be one of the first commissioners that the Biden administration would want to appoint. I really do wonder why it took them so long. Right. You're hearing about um, these, like, the ATF guy, the head of the – I mean, we're two years into the – is this normal time? Does it, does it usually take this long to put these people No, in it place? doesn't, but a lot of times nominations are held up. But in this case, they're just not made. So Why? The, well, the, the first ATF guy was, a, was anti, so anti-gun he couldn't get passed. That's right. Right. Yeah. And this new guy doesn't seem – doesn't want to use – he doesn't want to define what an assault weapon is. Yeah, I know. So that's, that's an issue there. But he wanted to ban the assault weapon that he couldn't identify. Carl, I would nominate you for all the positions. You would? Yeah, you'd be Carl, very you, you, you're so experienced in radio. You know the music's eventually going to get louder and cut I us know. off. Yeah, it's like the Oscars. Right. Should Except I say goodbye now? not woke. You should. Goodbye, Carly Shimkus. Bye. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for listening. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from 48th and 6th. Uh, heard around, uh, located in New York City, heard around the country, heard around the world, especially in the Ukraine. Uh, this hour, we're going to go inside the Uvalde shootings and the latest on the timeline. Uh, Commissioner Ray Kelly is going to be joining us in about 34 minutes. Uh, but with me in studio is Admiral James Charvitas. We're lucky to get the Admiral in here for one very good reason. It's because the Admiral's very productive in his free time. He's writing books that frees you up from your NBC contract. And as the 16th uh, Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, you're kind enough to do the radio show with me on a regular basis. You got that clause that you fought hard to put in, I'm sure. But now you have uh, out on uh, paperback, uh, Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Division. Uh, you also have other recent books, the Sailors, uh, the Sailors Bookshelf, 50 Books to Know the Sea, and 2034, A Novel of the Next World War, which freaked a lot of people out because it seems like it's playing out right now. But Risk It All is a new book, right? Brand new, Brian. Just came out this week and um, pretty uh, propitious timing, if you will, in the sense that in this war in Ukraine, you see two leaders who are 
kind of risking it all. You got Vladimir Putin, the dark side of risk, the recklessness, the lack of a moral foundation. On the other side, you have Vladimir Zelensky, who is literally risking everything. He looks over his shoulder from those front lines. He sees his wife, his children, his parents, the elders in his society, his cities, his civilization, his language. He is risking it all alongside other Ukrainians. These two leaders are colliding, and it's all about risk. So the book, To Risk It All, I think comes out at a pretty good time in that sense. And people are just stunned at this actor uh, that is somebody that a lot of people didn't take serious since his first. He ran on, I'm gonna, I'll be able to work with Vladimir Putin. He's a guy that worked in Moscow doing his shows and kind of knew Russian culture. But on the other side, he looked at, Vladimir Putin looked at his pure weakness. This guy doesn't have the moral fiber. He doesn't, he thinks he's going to deal with me. Really? You learned on stage? And it to- he was totally wrong. Mr. KGB was totally wrong. 100% correct. And let's uh, add to that that Vladimir Zelensky is five feet, five, in- five inches tall. He's my height. I'm a very short guy. As you know, you're looking at me. I can barely see over but, this microphone. But who does big things and is a powerful commander. Well, and Zelensky uh, is remarkable. He is almost like Winston Churchill in this moment, and we ought to continue to be behind him and behind his nation for all the reasons we know. Well, think about this, uh, how horrific the Ovalde shooting was yeah. when you have 19 children between 8 and 10 years old who were murdered by some twisted 18-year-old. He felt compelled with all the, uh, the carnage that he's experienced to offer condolences here to in this country to the parents here. That's how horrific this was. Indeed. It's just hard to imagine. And I saw a cover of the New York Post coming in here with the photographs of those little angelic faces, and it breaks your heart. Um, and a second piece of this, Brian, and, and you raise it correctly, is – as we ought to, we need to have a big, huge national debate about why this is happening and what to do about it. But you know where I come from is the international world. And I will tell you, Brian, this hurts us in the world. It, it makes other nations question us. It reduces our ability to lead. Um, there's an international component to this that goes beyond our domestic tragedy. Um, why do you think there is more of a violence here, it seems? I haven't looked at the stats, but this is just – just from gleaning from the headlines. I can't tell you what's going on in the Netherlands. I can't tell you what's going on uh, in Germany, but we don't see things like this. Well, first and foremost, we're awash in guns. And again, we need a national debate about this, but I'm with most Americans. Uh, Polls consistently show we need to uh, find a way to control the, the, the huge numbers of guns. And if you look at Uh, the numbers and look at the guns per person kind of ratios, um, that's, I think, problem one. Problem two is uh, Americans have a very independent sense of themselves. Um, We've always been a fractious country. We have divisions in our society. I think that is part of these challenges. And thirdly, and I heard your previous guest talking about it, so many of these are young males. And I am concerned about that demographic. You know, the in so many cases, the young boys um, are the challenge here, and I think we need more focus on um, how we are raising our boys in this society. I mean, one thing I would do, and I would think you would would support this, is 
okay, what's the problem? The problem is these uh, these this, these kids become assassins. A lot of times the yeah. first time they shoot is the, the horrific move. It's not like, yeah. oh, they've killed a lot. We finally got them after the 19th time. Yeah. So, number one, it's outside Columbine is usually one person. Why can't we get experts, law enforcement, forensic experts, criminal justice to, to study this and see where the commonality is? At the same time, you harden the targets with, with all the great military minds that we have, like yourself. Mm-hmm. We can't harden targets. And if you want to ever nationally fund anything you, to get and would get bipartisan support, it would be for the smallest town and the biggest city to have financing to get the right security. So you know if they're going to do this, these guys are going to get killed before they get in and, or, or our security would have broken as opposed to not be there. Why can't we do those two things? Um, and I'll add a third, which is um, the ability to uh, have so-called red flag events so that um, we can be watching what's happening on social media and so many times these red flags are out there. So I think the point we're both making is there's no silver bullet here. Yeah. There's no one thing that's going to solve this. But this particular shooting is so heartbreaking that I, I am hopeful it will at least get different people to come in together with different solutions, several of which you and I just talked and about. And I have you for two segments, right? You do. Okay, great. Um I just want to talk because uh, I want to talk about your book, but I also want to talk about what's going on with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. We seem to be writing very positively, and nobody's pulling more for Ukraine than I am. I know. About what's going on. And, but I see even the New York Times is writing very positively, pointing out the nine good things that are going on in Ukraine. But by the way, the Russians have begun to move towards changing the currency in Kyrgyzstan and in Mariupol and surrounding various cities and expanding their reach. So I, even though they're paying an awful price, they are expanding. Where are we at as you are the – with all the experience you've had in military operations, how much you know about the region? Yes, yeah, Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, I literally looked at all of these scenarios. This is not uh, fresh new music here. Putin invaded Georgia in 2008. He invaded Ukraine the first time in 2014. So NATO has been studying this in some depth. And uh, – Yes, the Russians are making some small advances. You know, you're the sports guy. It's kind of three yards in a cloud of dust at best, and it's more like one or two yards. It's going very slowly. And so much of life is compared to what? So Putin's plan was to take the entire country. And so, yeah, he's grinding out a few more kilometers. I don't think he's going to get much more than that. That's the good news. The bad news is it's going to be very difficult militarily to dislodge him from this so-called land bridge that he's created from Mother Russia down through the doomed city of Mariupol down to Crimea. It's hard to see a military solution there. So To push them back. Correct. Um, because think about it this way, Brian, and you know this in military terms, we always say that defense is to offense as three is to one. So the Ukrainians had the advantage because they were on defense. Well, guess what? Now Putin's troops are dug in. They've got very strong defenses. So for the Ukrainians to overcome it is going to be very difficult. So bottom line, I think ultimately we're going to go to some kind of an armistice. State of war probably continues. Think of the Korean Peninsula where North and South Korea are still technically at war. I think that's probably how this ends. It'll be months, um, but I don't think it's going to be years. Here's a couple of things. 
also this guerrilla war aspect where the little guy gets to. So if Kyrsan already was taken immediately and all you heard about, the mayor got shot, already got blown up, the Russian appointed mayor. Number two is the Ukrainians are going to be armed. They're going to be relentless. So the Russians who are already dispirited might be saying, well, I'm not I'm not going to be a mayor there. I'm not going to go grab Mariop- the Mariupol mayorship. I'm not going to be good in law enforcement. I'm going to be a cop there. I've been conscripted for one year. I don't even know what I'm doing. Uniform doesn't even fit. So if they continue to be harassed and blown up, almost like the Iraqis were doing with us, that could be an interesting scenario, right? Absolutely. And to some degree, all of this for Vladimir Putin is the original poisoned chalice. You know, he's won this prize, except it's full of poison, and it's going to cost him billions and billions of rubles that are getting scarcer and scarcer as he falls under sanctions. And your point, Ukrainians have shown us, if nothing else, they are very tough, very determined people. I know you always thought about scenarios, and you write ahead, a lot of your books are like that. But did you ever think that Finland and Sweden would be knocking on the door, filling out applications to be a member of NATO and they got to be fast-tracked right now? And he called Vladimir Putin himself, did the uh, president of Finland, and he said, You'd, I'm not a threat to you. Well, I'm doing this anyway. Yeah, that distant boom you just heard is Vladimir Putin's head exploding when those applications hit NATO. To answer the question, when I was Supreme Allied Commander, I, I literally begged the Swedes and the uh, Finns to at least think about joining NATO, but they were determined to remain kind of neutral. Putin is the greatest salesman for NATO in the history of the alliance. He had to get the Salesman of the Year award, and we want them. Believe me, Brian, these are two very capable militaries. They deployed under my command as allies to NATO into Afghanistan. Heck, my security detail was a bunch of six-foot, four-inch Swedish Vikings following me around in the Balkans. They're good. So Zelensky was asked by Jonathan Swan, what do you say to Americans who say this is not our problem? Here's what he said, Cup 44. First of all, they have to start uh, reading uh, some uh, memoirs of the Second World War. So what can I say to the people who think uh, that uh, this is just for Europe, this is far away, this is not in our backyard, this is somewhere in the world. But the world is uh, much smaller than we um, think. He's, he's telling us, if you guys study history at all, this is your fight eventually. He's exactly right. And recall that World War II analogy uh, with Zelensky now playing the part of Churchill. What did Churchill say to FDR? He said, give us the tools. We can do the job. And I think that's exactly what's unfolding. We need to continue to push those tools forward. Adding Finland and Sweden will be a powerful disincentive for Russia at the big level, things are going pretty well, despite some small Russian advances. And with James Chavitas here right now, his book is now out, Risk It All, Nine Conflicts in the Crucible of De- uh, Decision. Uh, in just a moment, we'll talk about that when we come back uh, and more. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, in about 10 minutes, uh, Commissioner Ray Kelly talks to us about uh, how we can harden our targets and spot these killers before they kill former Commissioner of New York. But with me right now 
If you're watching on Fox Nation, you know him. Admiral James Stravitas in studio, which means one thing. He's got a great book out. It's called Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. Talk to me about this, Admiral. The book, Brian, is a story of nine different uh, individuals, men and women, who have to make a decision under extreme stress. So many of our decisions are made with time. We can talk to mentors. We can think about it, the big decisions. But occasionally, you have to make a decision now, now, now. Think of an active shooter, as we've been talking about. Are you going to charge? Are you going to run? Are you going to hide? Those kind of decisions are hard. And so what I do is talk about these nine sailors, because that's what I know, and talk about their moment of decision, both men and women, and then try and draw some lessons from it that can be applied for anybody. So it's really a book for anybody who who faces hard decisions. And and what you've done in the past leads up to making the best decision possible, right? I mean, you could wing it and get lucky, or you could say, my whole life I've been waiting for this moment and act instinctively, which is why you practice in sports and anything like that. Um, you don't tell Tom Brady what to do. He feels it at this point. So give me one. Sure. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start at the very beginning, and that's John Paul Jones, uh, if you will, the father of the American Navy. He is on board his ship, the Bonhomme Richard, fighting the British in the 1770s off the coast of the United Kingdom. And his ship is literally being blown apart underneath him. His crew is begging him to surrender. John Paul Jones hears the captain on the other ship, the Serapis, call across the space between the two ships. They're grappling at this point. And the British captain says, now is the moment you must strike your colors. And John Paul Jones says, sir, I have not yet begun to fight. And he wins that battle. It's that determination that can get us through so many of these hard decisions where we have to risk it all. And a lot of times it comes from mistakes you've made in the past. Absolutely. And your point also about preparation, it comes from study and thinking about others and then put yourself in their shoes. I'll give you one other example. It's a woman, Admiral, she's a one-star at this point, named Michelle Howard. She is the on-station Admiral when Captain Phillips is taken hostage by all of these Somali pirates. And Michelle is a brand-new Admiral. She's uh, just kind of learning the ropes. But what she does is she relies on all this preparation, but she also brings together all the different tools at her disposal and makes the decision to take the shot that kills those hostages. If you've seen the film, Captain Phillips, um, it's a remarkable story. And behind it is this Navy one-star admiral, quite new to her job, who makes the right decision because of all the preparation, your point. Right. Uh, SEAL Team 6 was the, 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 the group the shot. Yep. before bin Laden, before they did the bin Laden raid, right? It's an amazing story and, and one of the toughest sniper shots because they're on a pitching deck on the back of a destroyer taking the shot down into a very small lifeboat. So that's really a hard sniper shot. Normally, of course, a sniper is on land, the target's on land. This is as hard a shot as you can imagine. They executed it flawlessly. Um I think I know the guy that took the shot. I think I might have met him. Good for you. Right. Okay. I'm we're not going to. We're not going to mention I his name so. here. <laughs> yeah, but I did get detail on that. So that is uh, that is also tremendous. It's good to have uh, instincts with that, uh, Admiral. 
Are you concerned with the battle we're having right now? We just got $33 billion and some Republicans bailed out of supporting that. Are you concerned about where we're going with this? And do you think the administration could do a better job maybe making people feel better that it's going to the right people and it's getting in the right hands? Yeah, I'm always um, understanding when legislators say, you know, that's a lot of money and we need to make sure, your point, it gets to the right kind of tools to put those in the hands of the Ukrainians and there's not corruption funneling it off. Stuck in Poland. I got it. I got that. But this is a big, big moment. And so here you you have a world where Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell are in total agreement about doing this. So I think that between the two parties, there'll be plenty of oversight. We've got the inspector generals. Sure. But I would say to any member of Congress, please get behind this. It matters. And I want the military to understand, do not give the, the people, the, the isolationists, a reason to say, I told you so. Back to history, World War II. Absolutely. Eventually, we're going to get in if we don't pay attention. Exactly. This is all we wanted from Afghanistan. Let them fight for their own freedom. Exactly. Admiral, congratulations. Go pick up his book. You will not not regret it. Risk it all. Nine conflicts in the crucible of decision. I'll see you soon, hopefully, on on One Nation on the weekend. I'm with you at your command. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. What law enforcement needs is the public, uh, neighbors, school teachers, relatives, friends, classmates, whoever, the people who are likely to see somebody's behavior online uh, and see it change from just being somebody just blowing off steam to taking a bit of a turn. Uh, that is Commissioner Ray uh, talking about what would help in his testimony yesterday in the FBI because everyone's trying to stop the school shooting. At the same time, you're trying to stop an assassination attempt by the pre- uh, on the, the former president of the United States, George W. Bush. And we were able to infiltrate that through the FBI. And guess where the assailants were coming from? ISIS from the southern border and angry Iraqis. That uh, Ray Kelly uh, had both worlds. He had his own counterterrorism unit in New York City uh, when I think he's the longest serving uh, police commissioner. Uh, through uh, with Mike Bloomberg, and then he had a previous term. Uh, Ray Kelly joins us now. Commissioner, first off, are we at the point now where the FBI is asking the American people to help out? The neighbors are really going to be one of our unused assets here, or family members turning in their would-be unbalanced kids? I really don't have a problem with that. Uh, You know, there's this red flag process that is in place in 17 states, uh, that if you see someone who's emotionally uh, unstable, indications that they're going to commit violent acts, you notify the police. The police can come and temporarily take a weapon from that person if they deem it appropriate, and then take the case to a judge to see what what a perhaps a permanent solution or or more permanent solution uh, can be. I, I think that's uh, that's one of the appropriate ways to go. But very few people even know about these red flag laws. They have to be better advertised. And I tell you what, the police don't know about it as well either. So it, 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 I think it's, uh, it, it's something of value to do. Is it a panacea? Absolutely not. But it, it's something that I think can have an effect. 
I, I imagine you talk about this all the time, but I would look at the last 10 to 25 school shootings and see if there's any commonalities between them. I know the last two, both 18-year-olds, both got their, both, both got their guns legally. Uh, the Buffalo shooter was somebody that had to sit down with state police because of his threat to blow up his school and kill himself, and he, they right. was considered okay to buy a gun. That did not appear in his background check when he went and picked up the gun that ended up killing those people in Buffalo. So as we look at these cases in particular, if Ray, Kelly, I'm thinking, first off, we got to harden the targets for, from the smallest to biggest school in the country. But in the meantime, what do we do to stop the next attack? Uh, well, I agree with you, hardening the targets. And um, I, I think uh, we've got lots of money out there, uh, post-COVID money that's floating all around. Uh, school districts should be able to uh, fund a security guard armed person, depending on the size of the school, obviously that will drive the number of uh, security people. But, uh, yeah, I think the time has come to do that, and particularly in places like uh, Texas, you know, where you can wait 20 minutes for a a police officer to arrive after a 9-11 call just because of the distances. So I can see uh, having a trained guard or ideally a police officer to be at the school uh, locations. I know it would give parents a a much-needed sense of comfort these days. Commissioner, in this situation, uh, as we understand it, and we know how much things will change, we understand there was about 40 to 60 minutes before, some people are saying, before the police, and in this case some of the elite Border Patrol, were able to enter the school uh, with a big shield in uh, in one unit, uh, get into that classroom, take some incoming shots, and then uh, kill the shooter. So does that time seem inordinate to you? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I tell you, it was a lesson from Columbine, which I think was in 1999. The overarching lesson from that situation was that the police waited too long. You've got to go in. Yes, it's dangerous, but that's what you get paid for. Uh, and there are different ways to to approach that. But they waited, in my judgment, way too long. And uh, that in, in a situation like that, you've got to mass up, you've got to make a quick tactical decision, and you got to go. And unfortunately, that uh, that wasn't done. Would it have saved lives? Uh, you know, I don't know if they, if they were there while the shooting was going on or afterward, but... Uh, yeah, they 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 definitely violated the cardinal rule these days uh, in in mass shootings. Uh, you got to go in, particularly where where children are involved. And, and I'm open to the fact that we don't have all the facts yet. But right now, that's what the AP and the New York Times is reporting. And we have not seen a, the police come out and say, "Yeah, you're right. We were on the outside trying to assess the situation." Like what happened in Florida at Stoneham. They stood on the outside, and that police commissioner just said, you know, our, our idea was to stay back and, con- and try to contain it, uh, which obviously yeah. was, a, was a horrible mistake because they went in and this guy just went on a shooting rampage. But in this situation, uh, as people are getting frustrated, they're playing politics, uh, if you ask me. And they're saying, we've got to get rid of AR-15s, number one. Number two, you've got to raise the age to 21. And uh, number three, universal background checks. I'm not uh, – and the red flag law. First off, when it comes to a red flag law, if you were to define what it is, uh, how would qualify for you to temporarily or permanently take my gun away? I think I think you sort of know it when you see it. 
uh, you know, police officers would respond. They would talk to, let's assume it's the parents who are making a call, get their observation of, of what's happening now. They can take a weapon, but only temporarily. This is not uh, confiscation. This is holding the weapon. And then, and every state is a little bit different, quite frankly. It's only in 17 states. But then that case is presented to a judge. And, and so due process is involved. And the judge makes a determination as to, you know, what, what the, the final, or not so much final, but a disposition right. should be. The individual, you know, need uh, mental assist, uh, mental health, that sort of thing. That that's what a judge could do. I think it is a a good policy. Can it be abused? Possibly, it, it, you know, it could be abused. But we don't have enough data on it because, quite frankly, although it's been used, it hasn't been used enough. And I think it's not been used because <laughs> there's no advertising of it. You just don't know it's out there. And as I say, the cops don't know it's out there, even in the states that, uh, you know, that have it on the books. So uh, that's the process. I, I think, it, you know, maybe it has different quirks or different things that happen in, in, in the states. Uh, but uh, overall, I think it's a sound uh, a sound approach. Would you not, raise the age to 21? going to solve the problem. Right. Would you raise the I'm age? Sorry? Would you raise the age to 21? Uh, you know, probably it's, uh, it's sort of like, uh, you know, chicken soup. It, it's probably not going to help, but it gives the uh, it help very much. But it gives the legislature something uh, something to do. Uh, I don't think it's so. You, so you're against that. We don't want to give them something to do. Uh, so that yeah, yeah, right. yeah, that would not be that would not be effective. So what do you yeah. think? The fact is, if I look at the last five shooters, they're all mentally unbalanced. Now a lot of them were killing for the first time. They don't have 19 arrests like the subway shooter that we saw on Sunday. So these kids seem to be loners. Number one, there seems to be some similarities. Uh, number two, um, number two, very involved in some type of social media or our video games. And uh, indications uh, that they're antisocial. But that doesn't mean necessarily you should call the cops and say, I'm worried that this guy's going to go shoot up a school. So how do we get on the offensive with this? And is there something that you're noticing about you've been in the business for so long? You you started as just a a cop on the street. Is there something different about these recent generations? Yeah, I think there is something different. Um, You know, there... They seem to be more loners, less social interaction, probably because of the the uh, internet. That's how they're that's how they're communicating. I communicating. I also think that uh, uh, these video games uh, may well play a role because they are they are really uh, all about violence these days. The wins that I see are. You know, particularly gruesome as far as shooting people. Uh, you know, with great abandon on these on these sites. Does that add to it? Well, it takes somebody smarter than me to confirm that. But I think it's it's, it's something that should be uh, at least uh, examined. And parents should pay particular attention uh, to the video games. You know, the kid sees a, sees the death and destruction on a video game. Uh, several hours a day, what does that do to his or her head? I don't know. But I'd like to have somebody with the qualifications take a look at that. 
Right. Uh, I want to fast forward. So everybody's adjusting. You know, I got uh, Police Commissioner Ryder wrote me this morning and said, by the way, in Nassau County, this is what we have done, X, Y, and Z. They've done a lot. You're now allowed to have a, a gun. And, for example, in towns by me on Long Island, you're allowed to have armed uh, armed uh, officers there if if, they, if you so choose to protect the school from a would-be situation like we saw in Uvalde. I also saw that, that Mayor Adams comes out. And he's telling telling old parents to check the backpacks of their kids, make sure they're not bringing guns to school, that they brought up. They found two guns in schools just last week. And he's also urging us to go back on the subways and buses, despite what we saw on Sunday. What do you think about what New York City's doing? Well, we have to do more. Uh, crime is up uh, 40 percent in New York. Uh, that's on uh, Mayor, Mayor Adams's uh, term. Uh, everything is up, and particularly, and I was looking in some of the wealthier areas of the of the city. The Upper East Side of Manhattan is probably one of the wealthiest square miles uh, in, in the world. The robbery is up there, uh, you know, fifty percent. Grand larceny auto, the grand larceny from the person is up over fifty percent, which is kind of a purse snatch. Uh, robbery being uh, kind of a classic uh, mugging. We know people are leaving the city, and we know people are not riding on the subway because of fear of crime. You know, surveys have shown that. Several surveys have, have shown that. So uh, we have to do more. And, uh, you know, I think the anti-crime units that we used to have in civilian clothes uh, um, absolutely essential, and they've been eliminated. They've been eliminated by the de Blasio uh, administration. We need the perpetrators of these crimes to uh, have to look over their shoulder and see if there's somebody following them or somebody. Yeah, watching the new unit's got windbreakers them. on, and they only focus on uh, gun. That's basically say I'm I'm a policeman, and and they only focus on guns. I understand the new well, police. I don't, know, I don't know what that means, focus on guns, because they're not doing stop and frisk. What are they doing focusing on, on guns? I have no uh, idea. As you say, they're in a uniform. Uh, you know, they're wearing a, a uniform that's a tip-off. You know, even, even the community will yell out when somebody's there in a, in a uniform. Uh, uh, tip people off. So the New York City uh, Police Commissioner, the job he used to have, Ray Kelly, uh, Sewell, is giving private unannounced security briefings to the top uh, top firms in the city, including the four big uh, accounting firms, uh, Monto, Goldman Sachs, because right now only 8% of Manhattan office workers are back five days a week. Now, the ripple effects to that is they're not using mass transit. No, that's revenue. They're not certainly not using subways. That's revenue. So if you're not getting people back in to go out to lunch and to go to the, the, the car to the end of the block or not going shopping, that has a ripple effect to the city, and they got this huge budget, and they don't have the tax revenue. So these one-on-one briefings, have you ever gotten to that point, and are they effective? Well, I, I mean, difficult to to tell if they're effective. We know that there is an exodus of uh, people, middle class, wealthy people, leaving the city. And the primary reason that we're told is fear of, of crime. So if the police commissioner can talk to business leaders and assuage their concerns, uh, fine. But it doesn't show on paper. The numbers speak for themselves. You know, we've got uh, a lot of crime. Transit crime is up uh, almost 60 percent. 
that this is the you know this is the reality of life in New York these days. We can talk all we want about how horrific it is, and we're going to stop this, and you know, uh, talk but no action. The action is reflected on the the, the crime statistics that are you know are measured on a weekly basis here. Uh, as I say, crime is up uh, forty uh, actually. Forty percent, yep, in New York City. But the you know robberies and grand larcenies, grand larceny auto, are over fifty percent increase. Now you have to understand that uh, 2020 and 2021 were high crime years. So when we're talking about a percentage increase, it's coming from a base that itself is high. Uh, you know, and people talk, well, shootings are down, and that's a good thing. But they're down just like 7%. In 2020, shootings were up 100%. In 2021, they were up 70%. So it's inordinately high in, in New York. And, uh, you know, people can feel it yeah. on the streets. You don't have to just read the paper. You can, you can gotcha. feel it. There's a sense, sense of urgency on the, on the streets. And people I'm... are concerned to walk out, walk on the, on the street. And obviously, as you said, right on the subway. Yeah, what you're trying to say is make the city safe. You don't need the briefings. We'll figure it out for ourselves. Uh, Commissioner uh, Ray Kelly, thanks so much. Appreciate your expertise. Okay, Brian, good to be with you. All right, uh, and uh, have a try to have a great Memorial Day, three days. one 408 I see you in there from Orlando over to Gainesville up to Albany, New York. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll get to you all when we come back. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Please spare me. But don't politicize this deaths, BS. Because these deaths, these record numbers of American slaughters are political. They are happening because of uniquely American politics. They are happening because 327 million Americans are essentially hostages to a morally and financially bankrupt gun lobby and the heartless gutless politicians that they buy and own. Uh, I don't know. Every day I say, why do I play Joy Reid? Because it's just so absurd that she has to say it's politics, NRA, just as really nuts. The president's remarks uh, coming off that, coming off his trip to uh, the Far East, comes back and he says the NRA stand up. You don't need a Kevlar vest on a deer. There's Kevlar, the deer wear Kevlar vest. Why do you need uh, an assault weapon when it's not labeled an assault weapon? We have these talks. If you want to take it, take it difficult. If you actually want to solve a problem, he's 78 years old. How much longer does he want to play politics for? Why don't you put together a blue ribbon panel of law enforcement experts, some uh, some respected politicians, Tom Daschle, Trent Lott. They tend to be very, uh, very acceptable on both sides. Why don't you go ahead and say, let's study the last 20 shootings. Let's see if there's a commonality here. Let's see what's changed. Let's see what's going on with the actual assailants and killers. Stop saying that you and I are nuts because these people have guns and go crazy. Stop taking away from people that want to hunt or shoot because people are nuts and go crazy and realize there's a separation. 
fill that gap on that separation. Stop the next attack. In the meantime, what we could do right away is harden every target now. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from 48th and 6th, but heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, this hour, we're going to be joined by Mark Thiessen, Washington Post Fox News contributor, and Chris Rufo. Chris, for the senior fellow of the Manhattan Institute, has broken a series of uh, big stories along the way. I'm just amazed uh, how much politics is playing a role with this horrific school shooting that's going to live on uh, in memory, like Sandy Hook, uh, for all the wrong reasons. But it took nine seconds for this administration to start playing politics with it. And I hope Republicans stay out. So let's get to the big three before we talk to Mark. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by LifeVac. Save a life in a choking emergency. Visit LifeVac.net to learn more and use code BK10 to save 10%. Number three. The executive order raises standards, bans chokeholds, restricts no-knock warrants, tightens use of force policies to emphasize de-escalation. And duty to interview to stop another officer from using executive force, just as occurred. Yeah, there's no commas uh, and no spaces between words in the president's world. Tone deaf or just idiotic? That's the choice I give you as the president decides to stick to his timeline and announce police reform. Cops, really? They're the problem? My goodness. Number two. FDA's timeliness of interviewing the whistleblower and getting into the facility for a four-cause inspection were too slow. And some decisions in retrospect could have been more optimal. Robert Califf, he's the new FDI director, but he was not on the job until recently. And he's talking about the baby formula debacle. It's stre- you think the stress is bad now? It's going to last until July. We got the details. Number one. What we know right now that this particular shooter did not have a criminal background, uh, no gang affiliation. Uh, we do know that he was residing with the grandparents at this time. And also that he was unemployed in a high school dropout. Uh, the shooter in Uvalde leaves 21 dead and 19 kids. We're learning more about the timeline of events and out of nowhere how uh, the politicians are playing politics within hours of this school shooting, trying to jam down gun reform, the gun reform and blame the NRA when it simply didn't exist. And if you're Beto O'Rourke, you look pathetic in interrupting a press conference as we try to make heads or tails about what happened in Texas. With me right now is Mark Thiessen. Uh, You know Mark. Mark, welcome back. Good to be with you, Brian. So so first off, the President of the United States says the problem is Republicans don't have the guts to stand up to the NRA. Is that the problem? Uh, No, it's not. Uh, Number one, I mean, I I agree 100 percent with what you said at the start of this, which is we just had like 18 kids killed (laughs) Um, and parents are grieving. And it's like in a nanosecond, they're using it for political purposes. Uh, And and it's just so shocking that we don't even we used to take like a, a, you know, a A beat, a a decent moment to stop and take a breath and and grieve with the families before we started attacking each other. And it's just like we're not our politics has gotten so bad that we're not we can't even do that. So that's shameful. Number, Number one. Number two. No, it's not a gun problem. 
it's a it's a mental health problem. It's a school security problem. I mean, I you know, I was I was thinking about this the other day that we can we secure federal courthouses, we secure airports, we secure all sorts of buildings. Like you can't you can't walk into a federal courthouse and, with a gun and get in there and shoot a judge because there's enough security and there's armed officers. Why do we not by now have an arm, at least one or two armed police officers at every school, public school in America? No reason. Why, why is that not not the case? While they figure you know, out what what why they're shooting, why the shootings are happening, you can harden every target. We know how to do it. And don't tell me there's not money there from the pandemic to use it. Of course. I mean, we learned after 9/11 that we had to take certain steps in order to secure the country. And so we secured our airports and we secured other other parts of the country and made it harder for for terrorists to hit us. These, you know, whether it's a, whether it's a, a terrorist or a crazed person or a mentally ill person or whatever it is, we need to be able to harden our schools. It's not this isn't isn't rocket science. And the idea that you you know when when somebody abuses their free speech rights, we don't talk about taking away people's First Amendment rights to deal with it. So why we, if somebody abuses guns, why would we take away a constitutional right <laughs> away from lawful citizens who did nothing wrong? In order to uh, in order to uh, to deal with that, it's just you, you don't take away fundamental rights. We have to find we have to find other ways to protect kids. Right. Listen to Beto O'Rourke just interrupt the press conference. He had somebody hold a seat on his staff, I imagine, and then the minute the press conference started, they quickly swapped in. In comes Beto O'Rourke, who's got the Democratic nomination to be the next governor of Texas. Hold your tongue. Cut ten. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down. Next shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No, you need to get his out of here. This isn't the place to talk this over. This is totally predictable. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Sir, you are out of line. You got it. So, so does he benefit from this? Even though I, I'm sure you you with me, they said it was wildly inappropriate. And if you, if you want to hold a press conference, you want to be governor, that's what you do. You don't interrupt one. Hours, uh, we still don't have all the identities of all the kids that were killed. No, it's exactly right. It, was, it wasn't a political event. The governor and the leaders of the state were holding a press conference to update people on the law enforcement operations surrounding this and, and what we know about what happened and what the, you know, what the, providing vital information for people who are grieving in a state that's worried. And he comes in and disrupts it and turns it into a political stunt. Uh, you know, I remember how outraged people were when President Trump during the early in the pandemic got started with getting into fights with reporters during those briefings, because at a time like that, people wanted to know information. What's going on with the pandemic? What's going on with the virus? And they got upset about that. But it's okay for Beto O'Rourke to come into a to a government briefing where they're trying to update people on a on a tragedy that's taken place and to turn that into a political into political theater is just absolutely appalling. Yeah, here's the mayor who who's the one interrupting him with a cane, by the way, fresh off cancer surgery, cut fourteen. This community is broken right now. When no community should have to go through what we do through in this community. And for a person to come in there and start that crap. I have no respect for Beto. And the haters that hate that send me the emails and the texts, to hell with you too. I don't care if you're a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent. We're American people. We're trying to come together as a community 
and to do what you did today at that press conference was wrong. And I'm sorry, but it was wrong. But he might be a hero to the left. And number one, I hear that that city leads Democratic. Yeah, you know what? I mean, that might that might have inspired a lot of like r- rabid gun control advocates and and his left wing base a little bit. But in Texas, that's not enough to win you an election. You got to win over moderates and independents, right? So I'm sure he alienated more people he needed in the election than than he gained. So it wasn't even smart politics. It was it was bad humanity and and political incompetence to do something like that. And it just shows that he's not qualified to hold any kind of public office, even dog catcher. And uh, Mark, I do have to bring you to the politics of it because you're so tapped in. Now there's a big push to uh, ban uh, what they call assault rifles. But the new ATF nominee has no idea what an assault rifle is. He refuses to define it. And is it going to raise the age to 21? They've got to look to do that nationally uh, and have universal background checks. you see anything getting done on what should be done? Well, what, number one, what should be done is not taking away gun rights. What should be done is, uh, I mean, we, we should, we, there, there is bipartisan agreement on red flag laws. Uh, to to uh, increase to increase reporting and make sure that uh, people if they're uh, if they are uh, if there's mental health problems I mean people knew that somebody had to know about this guy this guy it this just doesn't come out of nowhere uh, there there people were aware that this guy was having mental health problems his family obviously had to be um, so you know you should do red flag laws but also you know we can do some, there's something that we should all be able to agree on which is hardening schools. There should be, you know, again, how much? What is the what is the TSA budget for hardening airports? It, it, the, the hardening our schools couldn't be a fraction of that. Uh, and that's we should we should be trying to find things that we can all agree on that that would actually have an impact uh, on on stopping these shootings as opposed to uh, going into our corners and and fighting and getting nothing done. So yeah, so we'll see, we'll see what happens on this. I know that uh, after the Florida shooting. Uh, the Republican governor did raise the age to 21. The last two shooters did get it at 18. Uh, and at least in the Buffalo shooter case, there should have been a red flag on this clown who sat there for hours with the state police because he threatened to kill people in his school and kill himself. So uh, we'll see where that goes. The be- I want to bring it to two other topics. This baby formula situation is so avoidable. Robert Califf testified. He's the new FDA commissioner. This guy just got named and, and approved the other day. In a year and a half later, in the middle of a pandemic, that is such an emergency, he couldn't even name an FDA director. But here's a little about what he said uh, is the reason why we are down 45 percent of capacity for baby formula. Cut 28. Well, we had systems that were failing and decisions that could have been better. Um, and that, those findings will be made uh, public. No, no question about it. But there will also be a review of the entire food program, which is vast and includes things that you all have discussed, including chemicals and nutrition. Yeah, chemicals and nutrition. I'm against that. Uh, Robert, uh, Robert Califf says in December they got the whistleblower. The way it was delayed, it got caught in the mailroom, the whistleblower letter. And then when they finally looked at it and got down there, they realized it is a mess. The Abbott Labs, they closed it. It's amazing to me, Mark, that nobody said if we close this, it is 40 percent of our baby formula production. We can't make it at home. We have to inform the White House, the U.S. Commerce Department, U.S. Agriculture. It's amazing that nobody thinks beyond their little tunnel of responsibility. No, and and that and that uh, we knew about this in December and did nothing about it until uh, we hit and people started loot. There was no baby formula on the shelves, and all of a sudden people found out there was a crisis. We wasted uh, half a year. 
uh, not doing anything about it. The other thing that's interesting, there was a great article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal this week about how the baby formula industry is the most regular is one of the most regulated industries in the, in the country, which means it, there's almost it's it's a monopoly it's a monopoly between a couple of companies, uh, and and it's almost impossible to get uh, into the market if you wanted to produce baby formula. So they, they've intentionally, through government regulation, limited the number of companies that are uh, that are. Uh, that are producing baby formula. I mean, it's, uh, baby baby formula is basically cornstarch, uh, milk proteins, and nutri- nutrients. And you know, we, we don't regulate baby food, which you know, after after six to nine months, all of a sudden you're giving them. Str- we don't regulate strained peas to the point that there's only a, like two or three manufacturers in the entire country. Why do we do that with baby formula? We should maybe we should have some free market competition and get the government out of way and let people produce baby formula in this country. It's not rocket science. And, and Mark, here's the thing: uh, the president said he, he couldn't. He's not a mind reader. That's why in May he's just realizing it's a problem. That's that's another example of a terrible administration where someone told him and he forgot. The other thing is, if you know that it is run between four companies that controls the whole country, at the very least, if you di- if you like American babies. At least understand what this means if you shut down one lab with 40% of that overall production, which means we're begging France and Europe and the Netherlands for some of their baby formula. Well, Mexico, too, by the way, and and, uh, Canada's got plenty. This is a desperate situation. I know people that just stay on the phone all day looking for baby formula. The other big story is the the president chose yesterday to to announce police reform because Republicans were standing in the way. Why would he not? Why I know it's George Floyd's death anniversary, but didn't he understand the tone deafness of this presser? I obviously not because he did it. <laughs> he doesn't understand the tone deafness of a lot of uh, things he does. First of all, the reason we don't have police reform. I mean, Tim Scott has a police reform bill that there's 90 percent agreement on. The, the, the Democrats don't really disagree with anything Tim Scott has in his police reform, like him to add things that they don't that he doesn't agree to. But there's a, there's there's police reform that could be done. And Biden's executive action only applies to federal law enforcement, it doesn't apply to law enforcement throughout the country. Tim Scott's bill could have could have applied to uh, to law enforcement across the country. And he wanted to do something that was reasonable, that didn't that didn't demonize the police, but also had common sense reform so we could weed out bad cops. Nothing wrong with it. The Democrats wouldn't do it. They did. They they killed it before the election because they didn't want President Trump to be able to sign it into law and claim that he did something on police reform. So they purposely killed it then. And then Biden promised to work with Tim Scott and the Democrats wouldn't deal with it. So, you know, the, the only reason they don't have a police reform bill that was signed into law months ago is because they refuse to work with Republicans because they don't want to give Republicans credit for anything. Mark Thiessen, Washington Post and uh, Fox News. Last question. How bad, uh, how tarnished is the president after Brian Kemp's tri- uh, uh, triumphant victory as governor to at least keep the nomination in Georgia? And Purdue barely registered, didn't even get it to a runoff. And the president firmly went behind him. He also lost the secretary of state battle while winning with Herschel Walker. Is the president severely injured there in terms of perception of power? You mean President Trump or President Biden? Trump. Well, so, yes, I think it was a defeat for Trump. Seventy five percent of Republicans uh, said uh, didn't go for his candidate, didn't go, didn't do it. And he's getting about in all of these races, you know, he's running up the score with a lot of uncontested races. But he's basically his candidates are getting about 25, 30, 32 percent of the vote. Uh, So there's a lot of Republicans who are not following his lead. They love him. 
but Georgia Republicans in particular were burned by by the uh, by the losing two Democratic Senate seats, which led to one point nine trillion dollars in spending, which led to 40 year high uh, inflation. But I think it's actually a bigger defeat for Joe Biden. Because Joe Biden was the one who said Jim Crow 2.0. I mean, remember he called all Republicans traitors and enemies of the country and all the rest. He gave that horrible speech in Atlanta. That's been completely repudiated. He said it was voter suppression. How is it voter suppression when we have three times the African-American, not just the three times the overall primary vote, triple the African-American vote from four years ago in this primary? Unbelievable. So I think this yeah. is a big defeat for Joe Biden, bigger than for Donald Trump. Yeah, and all those corporations that took the stand on the president's urging, hurting the people yeah, of do, Atlanta and Georgia. Where do we go to get our, uh, our all-star game back? <laughs> you got a World Series championship. Mark, thanks so much. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, all right, take care. You got it. When we come back, we'll take some calls. And Chris Rufo will be with us. Big hour, don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, Just a quick follow-up on what I was talking about with this police reform and how tone-deaf it is. You tap no-knock warrants. Oh, fantastic. Now we're going to say no chokeholds. What about holds that are going to calm somebody down who's trying to knock your head off? Uh, Now you're going to say a a national database for cops. Uh, If they screw up in Orlando, you don't want them showing up in Washington State. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that most cops look at background checks. Wherever you go in any job, they look in your background. I mean, restaurant jobs might be a little different, but career jobs, I'm pretty sure they're running that already. To me, these are all insulting little moves as if cops are the issue. When you know the stats reveal that the people that paid the price over the last two years because of the George Floyd murder, that is bad policing. But the George Floyd as a person is nobody to look up to. Look at his track record. I mean, look at his police record. Look at the talent the guy had. But now the fact is that you're attacking cops, diminishing the force, Defunding them in many cases, including right here in New York City, by millions of dollars. You hurt their morale. This is an insult, this national police plan. They'll have no impact except for try to placate a part of society that you think you're losing, and that's the black America. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Could you give us any insight into his Not state really. of mind? What? When's the last time you spoke to him? Uh, I speak to him daily, but... Oh, yeah. Did you know he had guns in the house? I didn't know. I just, I get up at 5 o'clock, leave, come back. Yeah, that is the grandfather of the killer, the 18-year-old shooter, this mutant uh, barbarian that thought he would target 8- and 10-year-olds, and did. Killed 19, two teachers, he wounded 17, as many as 17 that were in the hospital. Most are expected to survive, many of them got out. But what makes these last two shooters in particular, this 18-year-old uh, in Buffalo, uh, plot and plan, and announce, uh, and also be spotted earlier that he was uh, showing bizarre behavior, going up, plot and plan, to kill as many people as possible in Buffalo, and then, of course, uh, 
this uh, terrible person in Texas who killed the elementary school kids in Uvalde. What is happening to our youth? Does it have anything to do with what we're seeing in our schools and what we didn't see for the last two years? And that's kids in the classroom. Uh, here to speculate with us is somebody who's been at the forefront of finding out what is happening in our schools and in our businesses, Christopher Rufo, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, uh, who's really an impactful journalist. Uh, Chris, welcome back. It's great to be with you. Hey, Chris, when people start looking at what's going on with these last two shooters in particular, should we also look at what's going on in these schools? Yeah, I think so. And uh, I, I think we should really take a step back and look at exactly what's happening with our culture and with our kids. And if you look at any, uh, by really any measurement, you have young people, especially young boys, uh, kind of suicide, violence, drug abuse, depression and anxiety, severe mental illness. Uh, these are all trends that are going in very much the wrong direction. And you have a generation of kids that is totally disconnected from those uh, kind of grounding institutions of family, community, a faith community, uh, those connections that keep people uh, within the bounds of sanity. And so you have these two horrific examples of kids who have been uh, just totally disconnected from society to the point where they think that it is uh, uh, the good thing to do to indiscriminately kill other human beings. It's unprecedented in our culture. And we should really take a deep look, not just at the practical, uh, legal, or policy levers that we can do to keep people safe, but exactly what has happened to this generation of young people, where they feel like this is not only okay, but they feel like it's their only avenue uh, to pursue. Yeah, I mean, we don't know the details of these shooters. Clearly, they're deranged, but they're not out of their minds. They're not where they, they plot and plan. They know how to drive. They know how to use a gun. They know how to... Uh, work social media. So they may be diabolical and sinister, but they're not, Ill- they're not out of their minds to the point where they can't uh, somehow function in society. And that's what you've been exposing to what's been happening with these uh, in school systems, with CRT and with these companies and this whole don't, you know, I'll pick my own pronoun attitude. I don't even know where this stuff came from and you're starting to unmask it. I, I th- would not be surprised if these two worlds meet. Yeah, and, and again, there's, there's no direct connection in these cases, but if I can step back and just make a broader observation, it's that our public institutions, especially our public schools, are promoting a vision of the country, of society, of, of human nature that is profoundly nihilistic. Um, it's a pessimistic vision, a negative vision, uh, and a vision that really doesn't connect kids with a sense of the deeper meanings in life. And so when you pair public institutions that are transmitting those kind of values with private institutions, you know, particularly the family and those kinship relationships that have been shattered, you know, one thing that you see over and over when you go back into the history of mass shooters or school shooters is that they're almost always lacking a father. They almost always come from abusive or destructive homes. And, of course, not all people who grow up in those conditions become mass shooters. Uh, so it's not a one-to-one causal relationship. Um, but it's something that I think is profoundly important. And if we want to stop this kind of violence, whether it's school shootings, whether it's gang-style shootings in America's inner cities, we have to look at those, uh, uh, those key relationships that have been destroyed. I don't think human beings are different now than they were 50 years ago or 100 years ago by nature. It's that our culture has changed, 
And our culture is in a very precarious, very scary uh, and very dangerous position right now. So that also makes a lot of Bill Maher's monologues, of all things, that I've avoided over the last few years. But lately I found it really intriguing because it seems to be logical, not political. Listen to what he said about what's going on with this whole pronoun push. Cut 49. Well, if something about the human race is changing at a previously unprecedented rate, we have to at least discuss it. Broken down over time, the LGBT population of America seems to be roughly doubling every generation. According to a recent Gallup poll, less than 1% of Americans born before 1946, that's Joe Biden's generation, identify that way. 2.6% of boomers do, 4.2% of Gen X, 10.5% of millennials, and 20.8% of Gen Z. Which means if we follow this trajectory, we will all be gay in 2054. (laughs) (laughs) He he also went on to talk about this pronoun thing and that on the both coasts, it seems to be about every, every dinner party talks about how their kids transitioning, but it's not happening in the Midwest. Why is that? There's something in the water. Well, I think there's something certainly that is a, a cultural element and, and perhaps an element of social contagion. And uh, I, I was recently reporting a story uh, in New York City and a mother whose child is transitioning uh, uh, from one gender to the other uh, was very concerned about it. She confided in me that that actually on her block and even in her apartment building, there are three or four families within just a stone's throw of each other that all have kids around the same age, uh, a kind of early teenage years, adolescent years that are all transitioning. Uh, and so this is something that appears to be uh, high status in a lot of these communities. It's also a way for kids who are struggling with maybe self-image or body image or, or sexual identity or, or kind of relationships in school to, to, to tap into a community that will immediately affirm them and give them a sense of purpose. I think a lot of these things, unfortunately, uh, are connected, where you have uh, young people who are not being served by adults. They're not being served by institutions. They're not being served by strong families. And they're seeking to find a, a kind of solution to whatever pain and anxiety that they're feeling. Uh, I see this even in my rural community, uh, small-town community in Washington State. Um, kids are in a rough spot, and we need to have a kind of 360-degree conversation in this country about how we can get kids right. back connected with those mainstream uh, kind of thrusts of society. All right, listen, I want you to hear more from this. Cut 52. Yes, part of the rise in LGBT numbers is from people feeling free enough to tell it to a pollster, and that's all to the good. But some of it is, it's trendy. Penis equals man. Okay, boomer. Remember, the prime directive of every teen is anything to shock and challenge the squares who brought you up. And if you haven't noticed that with kids, doing something for the likes is more important than their own genitals, you haven't been paying attention. Dr. Erica Anderson is a prominent 71-year-old clinical psychologist who is herself transgender and who now says, I think it's gone too far. The LA Times summarizes, she's come to believe that some children identifying as trans are falling under the influence of their peers and social media. If you attend a small dinner party of typically very liberal upper-income Angelinos, it is not uncommon to hear parents who each have a trans kid having a conversation about that. What are the odds of that happening in Youngstown, Ohio? If this spike in trans children is all natural, why is it regional? Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. 
If we can't admit that in certain enclaves there is some level of trendiness to the idea of being anything other than straight, then this is not a serious science-based discussion. It's a blow being struck in the culture wars using children as cannon fodder. I don't understand parents who won't let their nine-year-old walk to the corner without a helmet, an EpiPen, and a GPS tracker. And God forbid their lips touch dairy. But hormone blockers and genital surgery? Fine. Talk about a nut allergy. I mean, what do you say to that? Right, Chris? I mean, it's genius. I mean, it's really funny. It's spot on. And I think it strikes at the heart of this progressive orthodoxy in these big cities. You know, I've lived in these places and San Francisco and D.C. and, and Los Angeles. Uh, you have people that have this kind of purity ethic. So they have to have the most pure foods, most pure organic uh, kind of consumable products. Uh, and yet they're willing to dive headfirst into uh, taking drugs that were invented for chemical castration and then giving them to prepubescent children. Uh, it's totally insane. But what you have to think of is what is the thing that's motivating them? Uh, trans, the kind of transgender status has become uh, an elite status. And even when I was, had my kids in, uh, in public schools in Seattle, uh, I, some of the kids had been going through this process. And you could tell from the parents, and, and, and maybe you're not supposed to say this, but you could tell which parents really believed it, they wanted it, they were excited about it, it gave them a sense of meaning, it gave them a sense of status, and those were the kids that were starting to be transitioned, even in kindergarten, uh, uh, from one gender to the next. And so you have to look at the cultural incentives of these places, and then most Americans, people who are in the kind of middle class or suburban uh, kind of stereotypical uh, parts of the country um, have to figure out how to protect against it. Because unfortunately, what happens in elite America starts to bleed over into the rest of the country. And lastly, when you see what happened in Georgia, Jim Crow 2.0, all white people are trying to stop black people from voting. Joe Biden says this is uh, Bull Connor has come back to life, the, the blatant racist and segregationist. And then you see how everybody voted, how much voting in the primary, when most people don't care in a midterm, the show, the, uh, the, show, the show at the polls was overwhelming for both parties and all ethnic groups. What does that tell you? Uh, it, it tells me very simply that the left wants to pretend like the country is forever stuck in 1963. Uh, this is the narrative that they've bought into. This is the narrative that gives movement to their, to their politics. And so they're pretending like the country hasn't made any progress since the pre-civil rights era. It's patently false. It's been false for, for decades. And this, this voting pattern in Georgia where, in which everyone has a very easy access to vote, it's a secure way to vote, uh, it's supported by vast majorities of the public, uh, really shows the lie in this narrative. It shows that our country, uh, you know, is moving towards a system of, uh, of free, fair, and secure elections. Uh, and that's something that everyone should celebrate. Yeah, bring your ID. We're not going to match signatures. Is that so oppressive? Most people want you to bring your ID of all ethnic backgrounds. And lastly, Chris, that plays into what your biggest impact would be, arguably, and that's what happened with Disney. By exposing Disney's agenda, having them come out blatantly against the parental rights bill and mislabeling it, the don't say gay bill, by bringing that forward and Governor DeSantis sticking up, it stops what happened in Georgia. Corporations jumped on, uh, jumped out of that state, including Major League Baseball. Uh, Delta threatened to leave and all these other uh, major corporations because of Georgia's Jim Crow 2.0 bill, which was mislabeled. 
But in Florida, it stopped. And Disney's still paying the price. Do you think that's going to allow companies to legitimately put up their hands and say, keep me out of this because it's not good for the stock price instead of saying, I have to do it? Absolutely. We're already seeing that that's happening. The Wall Street Journal has reported that CEOs around the country are discussing with each other how to avoid becoming the next Disney. And what we did, and through my investigative reporting, through the courageous leadership of Governor DeSantis, whom I worked with uh, on this kind of campaign, uh, what we did is we we took Disney's favorability rating from 77% last year down to 33%. So now Disney, which is a children's entertainment company, is less popular than Joe Biden and less popular than Donald Trump. That's a disaster for companies. And now all these corporations are figuring out how to avoid it. It takes strong leadership. It takes someone like Governor DeSantis to put a price on it. And I think we've developed a model for conservatives moving forward. Yeah, Christopher Rufo, you know what you did? Uh, You're allowing these CEOs to do probably what their instincts told them they should do and say, I don't want any part of this and you're not going to force me to do it. I don't care how woke uh, my employees are. And Netflix stood up and said the same thing to their people. I don't think there are any less left. I think they're being more uh, business centric. And that's what we should be getting back to. Chris, uh, great work as usual. You're indefatigable. Christopher Rufo, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. All, All right. right. You got it. When we come back, I'll, t- I'll finish up with some calls and some final thoughts on this hour of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, uh, we are back. Uh, A couple of things that I don't think we really uh, brought up enough today, because we got the big three, which I think are important. And, uh, of course, when we talk about baby formula, okay, Uh, police reform, yeah, that's got to be a part of it. Uh, And I also think when you talk about uh, the number one story is the ugliest story, the Uvalde shooting. Uh, in Texas. And, you know, I'm not sure where this story went, but there was another story in Texas about 300 miles away uh, that they were able to stop a would-be attacker with two guys, and they have evidently had um, AR-15s. So we're looking into that and seeing that I can follow up. But the other big story was Tuesday, not only because I Wednesday I was on assignment for Fox Nation, but Tuesday uh, in many ways are, is quite intriguing. Number one, we found out there's going to be a recount in Pennsylvania so it looks like Dr. Oz has got about a 1,000-vote lead, and now they're pushing. The, Dave McCormick is pushing to count envelopes without dates on them. That is a huge problem because the minute you do that, when Dr. Oz is probably going to win anyway, it's going to happen. Very rarely do recounts reveal something, uh, 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 turnover elections, obviously. Uh, look, at past, uh, uh, look at past recounts. But number two is now all of a sudden you have a precedent. And the big problem Republicans have with Democrats is that the inefficiency of mail-in voting. That's why they say show up at the same day. Because of the inefficiency, one of the things is dating. When did this come in and when exactly is the cutoff? And then why can't you count them in time? And did you fill out the, uh, did you fill out the ballot right? So now Dave McCormick says I want to count everything. That's a little bit of a problem. Number two, I think Donald Trump made a huge mistake, and I knew it the second he did it, by not only alienating Georgia voters on the runoff election to put Warnock and Ossoff into power, but then he comes back and has Senator Perdue, who failed because he was lazy, uh, to get the Senate seat again. He didn't want to even go to a debate, and he begs him to run governor. He has no message, no, no campaign, 
He loses by 40 points. Makes Trump look terrible. And Herschel Walker, as uh, promising as he can be and as bright as he is, he has not shown me yet. He has went out of his way to study the issues. And I feel real bad for George P. Bush. I think he's light years better than the current attorney general. And he'll never be tarnished in scandal. Here's Molly Hemingway on what's going on with the whole Jim Crow 2.0 and the election reform. Cut 38. Jim Crow was a real thing that our country suffered through, where the Democrat Party basically disenfranchised an entire race of people. It was very difficult to get rid of those laws. And so the slur really stings. Now, the people who wanted to pass election integrity said that it was very unfair, that that was a horrible thing to say, and that they simply wanted to make it easy for people to vote, but difficult for them to cheat. So they slightly streamlined some things. They made some improvements. They developed some consistencies. They made it so that you have to show a photo ID in order to vote. And, yeah, the proof is in the pudding. There was this primary yesterday. Voter turnout is way up across all categories, including in the Democrat Party. This was a horrible lie, and people should have been held accountable. Yeah, and that's why I talked about Chris Rufo. Uh, they weren't, and they aren't. The, all they've said is check signatures and limit the number of drop boxes. Before the last election, there was zero drop boxes. It's an insult to say minority communities can't go, go out of the way to vote when they've basically given six out of seven days, months ahead of time, to vote. Brian Kilmeade Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.